Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is July 25th. Louise Brown doesn't mind if you call her a test tube baby, but I prefer IVF since there weren't any test tubes evolved, she says with a laugh, gesturing to the large glass jar in which she started her life. That jar is now displayed at the Science Museum in London because exactly 40 years ago, Wednesday, Louise Brown became the first person to be born after being conceived outside the human body through in vitro fertilization or IVF. Her embryo was taken from the jar, called the desiccator, and transferred into her mother Leslie's womb. Nine months later, Louise arrived, and so did the world's media. Hordes of reporters representing outlets from U.S. to Japan descended on a small southwestern English town of Odom, determined to bear witness to what time then called the most awaited birth in perhaps 2,000 years. The mood before the birth was tense. British scientist Robert Edwards and his gynecologist colleague Patrick Steptoe had been working toward it for more than a decade. Edwards had first fertilized an egg outside the womb in 1969, later calling on Steptoe to help him refine the technique for people. The pair had attempted implantation in 282 women. Five had become clinically pregnant, but none had so far have given birth to a live baby. Alongside Jean Purdy, the world's first embryologist, an essential but often forgotten member of the team, Edwards and Steptoe worked under secretive conditions, owing to intense competition between fertility researchers and opposition from religious groups and the public. When the big day came, doctors filmed the cesarean section in order to capture Leslie's damaged fallopian tubes and prove to the public that Steptoe and Edwards' claims were not a hoax. Some were critical of Leslie and her husband, John, for making their daughter's birth so public. By turning the birth of their daughter into a media event, the Browns have degraded and institutionalized the child, and for that act, not for their act of medically-assisted birth, the Browns should be viewed as symbols of the degeneration of Western morals. Time reader Grant Parsons of Ann Arbor, Michigan, wrote in after the magazine reported the news of Louise's birth. My parents didn't have a choice about making it public, Brown tells Time. If they didn't, they would have had people asking, why can't we see her? What's wrong with her? Steptoe and Edwards needed the birth to be public, Brown says. Had there been anything at all wrong with me, it would have been the end of IVF. Brown says that though her mother was a private person, she would have done anything for Steptoe and Edwards because she was so grateful. Not long before mom passed away, she said without IVF, she wouldn't have anybody left in the world, says Brown. Even up to her last days, she was pro- so proud of who she was and what she did. The medical pioneers later became like Louise's grandparents when she got pregnant with her first child and wrote to Bob to tell him before anyone else. She now lives a very normal life in southwestern England, working for a freight company in Bristol, living with her husband and two sons. Many were jubilant about the first successful IVF birth. Stuart Kunkler from Columbus, Ohio, wrote to the magazine that it would be a glorious day for women afflicted with the types of sterility Mrs. Brown has overcome. While Margaret Wood Milan from New Hampshire wrote that with abortion rights, the arrival of IVF was a boon for those who share the same basic belief that parenthood should be a matter of choice. Others were terrified of what Louise would mean for humanity. Religious groups were opposed to the idea of playing God with reproduction to a process in the course of which many embryos often died. 
But even secular society found the idea alarming. Newspapers and readers made regular comparisons to Aldous Huxley's 1934 novel Brave New World, in which natural sexual reproduction is banned and humans are grown in labs through the process similar to what happened before the embryo was placed inside Leslie's womb. We're on a slippery slope, a British geneticist, Robert J. Berry, told Time in 1978. Western society is built around the family. Once you divorce sex from procreation, what happens to the family? So far, the family seems to have done all right. In the years after Louise's, Louise Brown's birth, the number of women undergoing IVF grew slowly with the first baby born through the treatment in the U.S. in 1981. The 40th IVF baby born in 1982 with Louise's sister, Natalie. Now some 6 million babies worldwide have been born through IVF, according to the Sciences Museum. Debate still rages on who could, who should have access to the treatment and who should pay for it. The average cycle costs $12,000 in the U.S., and success rates vary between 40% and 2%, depending on a woman's age. But the number of babies born through IVF goes up every year in the U.S., with more than 70,000 in 2016. Brown says she was shielded from negative reactions to IVF growing up, despite her parents receiving thousands of letters. Now the response is mostly positive. A few months ago, I was in the supermarket with my husband and sons, and I heard footsteps running up behind me, she says. It was a woman, and she had a four-year-old, the same age as my son, and a tiny baby in her pram. She said that it was she had always wanted to thank my mom and me, because without us, she never would have had these two. It makes you tear up. And then in July 25, 1943, Benito Mussolini, fascist dictator of Italy, was voted out of power by his own Grand Council and arrested upon leaving a meeting with King Vittorio Emmanuel, who tells El Duce that the war is lost. Mussolini responded to it all with an uncharacteristic meekness. During the evening of July 24th and the early hours of the 25th, the Grand Council of the fascist government met to discuss the immediate future of Italy. While all in attendance were jittery about countermanding their leader, Mussolini was sick, tired, and overwhelmed by the military reverses suffered by the Italian military. He seemed to be looking for a way out of power. One of the more reasonable within the council, Dino Grandi, argued that the dictatorship had brought Italy to the brink of military disaster, elevated incompetence to the level of power, and alienated large portions of the population. He proposed a vote to transfer some of the leader's power to the king. The motion was passed with Mussolini barely reacting. While some of the extremists balked and would later try to convince Mussolini to have those who voted with Grandi arrested, Il Duce was simply paralyzed, unable to choose any course of action. Shortly after the Grand Council vote, Mussolini, groggy and unshaven, kept his routine 20-minute meeting with the king, during which he normally updated Victor Emmanuel on the current state of affairs. This morning, the king informed Mussolini that General Pietro Baudiglio would assume the powers of Prime Minister, and the war was all but lost for the Italians. Mussolini offered no objection. Upon leaving the meeting, he was arrested by the police, who had been secretly planning for a pretext to remove the leader for quite some time. They now had the council vote of no confidence as their formal rationale. Assured of his personal safety, Mussolini acquiesced to this too, as he had to everything else leading up to this pitiful denouncement. When news of Mussolini's arrest was made public, relief seemed to be the prevailing mood. There was no attempt by fellow fascists to rescue him from the penal settlement on the island of Ponza to which he was committed. The only remaining question was to whether Italy would continue to fight alongside its German allies or surrender to the allies. And then finally, Puerto Rico is often called a commonwealth, but that is actually just a word in the official title of the government of Puerto Rico. Kentucky is also a commonwealth, as are Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. 
Clearly, these states are no different from states like California and Arkansas, which do not refer to themselves as Commonwealth. So why is Puerto Rico frequently referred to as Commonwealth, and what does this term actually mean? The answer to the first part of the question is clear. Some people began to call Puerto Rico a Commonwealth in 1952 after Congress approved its constitution, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, on July 25th. At that time, the Congress was explicit that its gift of local power did not lessen federal control over the island or change its status as a territory. Since 1952, the term Commonwealth has evolved to describe a potential relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico in which Puerto Rico is given special rights and privileges greater than those enjoyed by the states. Under a proposed enhanced Commonwealth government, Puerto Rico could ignore federal laws, sign treaties with foreign countries, and receive federal funding with no strings attached, all while possessing irrevocable U.S. citizenship and forcing the U.S. to maintain Puerto Rican policies it may no longer want by mandating a mutual consent clause in an initial U.S.-Puerto Rico pact. The United States officials representing all three branches of government have rejected Commonwealth proposals as unconstitutional and unfeasible. They have done so many times over the course of many years. Commonwealth is clearly not an option that the U.S. federal government accepts as a matter of law or policy. One high-level statement on this topic came in 2011 from the President's Task Force on Puerto Rico in which the White House clarified that under the Commonwealth option, Puerto Rico would remain as it is today, subject to the Territory Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Despite this record, the popular Democratic Party of Puerto Rico, which is not affiliated to the U.S. Democratic Party and is also known informally as the Commonwealth Party, was permitted to place a Commonwealth option on plebiscite ballots, one definition of Commonwealth in 1967 and a different definition in the 1993 ballot. In 1998, no Commonwealth option was allowed in the plebiscite ballot. The Commonwealth Party urged its supporters to vote for none of the above in protest. Many did so, and this option became an exact proxy for Commonwealth support. The confusion and lack of understanding over the Commonwealth option in Puerto Rico led to inconclusive plebiscite results in 1967, 93, and 98. The only firm conclusion reached from the three votes was the mass majority of Puerto Ricans want to move beyond status quo, in the 2000 referendum, 2012 referendum confirmed this, with 54% of voters voting against the status quo. When asked what the new option they preferred, 61% chose statehood. In a 2017 plebiscite, 97% of voters again chose statehood. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Great Britain First Test Two Baby at Time.com Benito Mussolini Loses Power at History.com and Puerto Rico Self-Governing Commonwealth of the United States at PuertoRicoReport.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.